I'm Katie Prejean McGrady, and this is Ave Explores. The season of Lent provides countless opportunities, truly countless opportunities for us to figure out on our own, and of course, with the aid and help of the Holy Spirit in pursuit of deeper relationship with Christ so that we can one day be eternally with the Father in heaven. There's our Trinitarian theology for the episode. Lent provides us with this unique opportunity to figure out what we need to do to return to the Lord. And that seems like the simplest possible thing we could say. Oh, Lent is a chance to return to the Lord. And here's your chance to go gung-ho and figure it out and do these various spiritual practices and make it back to Jesus. And we say that, right? Make it back to Jesus, return to the Lord. And it begs the question, well, if I have to return to the Lord, it means that I've walked away in the first place. And why is that? Why have I walked away? Have I walked away because other things in life have proven to be satisfactory and engaging and, and enjoyable? And, you know, quite frankly, sometimes it feels like God isn't. Have I walked away because life is just too busy and I don't have time for Jesus in the midst of all of that? Have I walked away because I found something in faith to be lacking? Maybe it feels like God hasn't provided for me in the right way, or it feels like, oh, this is just too hard. It's making too many demands upon my life. If we're returning to the Lord, there's a, a deep implication that we've stepped away in the first place. And so I wanted to sit down with the author of Return, this Lenten journal that we are working our way through over the season of Lent. I wanted to sit down with Father Johnny Burns and ask him, right, what is it that has led us to walk away? And then, of course, how do we get back? But, but really start with that central question. Last week, we, we chatted with Mark Hart about just how do we enter into Lent? How do we enter into Lent fully and recognize that praying and fasting and giving alms and returning to Jesus is a, a worthy effort in the first place? But now I think it's important for us to start diving into, I've left because, fill in the blank. I've left because I don't want to be vulnerable. I've left because I, I don't think that Jesus has provided what I've specifically wanted or asked for. I've left because I've, I've convinced myself that I can go it alone. I can do it on my own. And that, of course, eventually proves to be false and leaves us wanting and, and really leaves kind of a string of broken hearts in our life and in the lives of others. If I've returned to the Lord or I'm trying to return to the Lord, I've walked away. Why? And then of course, how do I get back? Father John has been a remarkably kind and, and loving spiritual father in my life over the few years that we've known each other. You know, right after we hung up our zoom call, we were chatting about the fact that when we recorded this last month, uh, it was right before my husband and I were about to go to France for a few days for kind of like a personal pilgrimage and for this event that I was speaking at. And Father John, of course, knows France quite well. And he laughed and he said, man, oh man, I always feel like we talk to each other at like significant moments, like when you're headed to Europe or when I'm in Europe. Father John and I got to know each other. And this is important to the story. Father John and I got to know each other uh, when I was in Rome in the March, uh, excuse me, the, the spring of, of 2018, March of 2018. For the pre-synod gathering of youth and young adults, I was one of the, the three young adults sent by the USCCB to go to this meeting at the Vatican. And Father John reached out to me and said, hey, you don't know me, but we know a lot of, of mutual people. And I'd love to take you and the, the U.S. delegates out to dinner. He was in Rome at the time, living at the Casa Santa Marta and, uh, and working at the Casa, as it's called, working on his doctoral dissertation on forgiveness. And so I never met this guy. We make plans, the, you know, the three of us from the USCCB, we make plans to go to dinner with him. And, and the first thing he said to the three of us was, okay, I don't want any fussing about this. I'm covering the cost of dinner tonight. And we're all like, no, no, Father, like, of course we can buy our own dinner. And he said, no, I'm the dad here and I'm covering dinner. And he bought us all dinner. And, and he, he was so loving and so tender and so kind and cared for us and talked to us and shared with us and just... It was wonderful to kind of have this little beacon of American hope in the midst of this very busy meeting in Rome. And, and that's kind of been our friendship over the years, this reconnection, usually at moments and in times in my life when I've, I've needed that fatherly presence, have needed to be reminded of what it's like when we return to the Lord with all of our heart and let the Lord provide for us. This conversation is one of our first episodes here in this entire Ave Explores Lenten season. 
If you've been with us, you know that for 19 seasons, we sit down to have these conversations, these long form deep dive conversations where we learn the stories of our guests. We get their insights into the particular topic. Father John has been a frequent guest of Ave Explorers over the years. In fact, I think the first time we ever had him on years and years ago was about Lent. And of course, now he's written this book for all of us to journey through Lent together. And so I, I hope you truly enjoyed this conversation. We'd be really grateful if you'd subscribe, follow, join our conversation here on Ave Explores Lent by subscribing to our emails on the Ave Maria Press website, AveMariaPress.com, by following the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your shows, by giving it a rating and a review, sending a link to someone and saying, hey, listen to this conversation. It's really fruitful. All of that helps the show continue to grow and, of course, helps provide people the opportunity to really dig into these conversations in what I think is, of course, a very fruitful way. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy this conversation with Father John Burns about returning to the Lord, why we need to return in the first place, and, of course, how. Father John Burns, it's so great to have you back on Ave Explorers. Welcome. Yeah, good to be back with you, Katie and everybody. Full disclosure, Father John is a good friend. It's always a treat. I love when my friends write for Ave because then I can like, here's the excuse now I can <laughs> talk to you. We can have the conversation. Uh, tell us a little bit about, I feel like we always have to reintroduce you to our new listeners. Who are you? Where are you? What do you do? Where do you come to us today as we record? Yeah, so I'm a Dawson priest from Milwaukee, the Archdiocese of Milwaukee. I live at our seminary, St. Francis de Sales Seminary. I'm assigned to, it's a new assignment, it started in June. I'm assigned to the renewal of women's religious life, which is both local and national. So uh, yeah, every time we do this, my assignment's like changing. And so it's <laughs> yeah. like we're introducing <laughs> Update new everyone. Yeah. So just working to renew religious life, bring sisters back and help them get healthy and holy and well mm-hmm. because we need them. We need them. There's like a, a moment I feel like all religious communities are having in part because of the work that you've done where like there's a Twitter account, sisters holding things. And it's like <laughs> just lovely photos of nuns holding various items. So roses or, you know, babies. And it's just such a joy to see. Like, it's just this captivating love. Is that what you always wanted to do as a priest? Like, how did, how did the Lord lead you into that work? Beautiful question. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it was like a joke dream. I mean, like I would say, <laughs> wouldn't that be fun if, you know, my first couple of years of priesthood, if I could just devote my life to helping religious women in particular. So I didn't think it was a possibility, but it, it came about in seminary when I started working with missionaries of charity at their soup kitchen in Rome. And just realizing, like, I didn't grow up around sisters. And I just remember seeing them live and love and serve in a way that was unlike anything I'd seen before. Like, it was so thoroughly feminine and, and consecrated. And it was so different than the priests that I knew. And I remember being mm-hmm. like, man, that's, that's womanhood in a way that I've never seen. And I think we all need to understand the gift mm-hmm. of woman in its highest expression, consecrated to Christ as a bride. So, yeah, it's, it's burned in my heart since I was a seminarian. I didn't dream that it would be possible to give my whole life to it. And my bishop has been really wonderfully supportive, seeing that the diminishment of religious life and seeing a passion in me to do something about that. He's like, well, we'll just go do something about it. Do your best. And so, yeah, I get to cruise around now just trying to help support and promote vocations and then help Mm -hmm. the communities. And it's like a, it's a dream come true, really. Really, it's a gift. (laughs) It, It does revolutionize a community. We have the Religious Sisters of Mercy in the Diocese of Lake Charles. I think I've said this before with you on a podcast when they first got here there was like that immediate like dukes up like why are the nuns here like did, are we in trouble because i think there's this perception at least in our town the nuns ran the schools and my dad had like vivid memories of being wrapped on the knuckles by the sisters <laughs> and and now the rsms are here and there's just this instant like the children love them the parents trust them I, like i would walk over hot coals for sister miriam ruth who i bring coffee on tuesdays when i go pick up rose for pt because that's like the only time that we have scheduled time to see each other uh, but there's just this desire it's what you said a second ago they live and they love and they serve in this different way and there's this attraction to it which i think is actually a great entry point for our conversation about the lenten season because w- this is the perfect opportunity for us to renew a focus of how can i live how can i love how can i serve differently in accord with god's plan tell us a little bit about Lent in the the mind and the experience of Father John Burns with this very unique assignment throughout the course of your priesthood. Like, how have you approached Lent over the years, and and what does it it mean to you? Because clearly, you like it enough to have written a whole reflection book about it. Yeah, 
Yeah, Lent, I mean, Lent is like that season, right, that we all had to grapple with in our earlier stages of kind of conversion. It's like, yeah. why do we fast? Why do we have to suffer? Why do we give things up? And it's annoying as a kid and you deal with it and then it gets kind of fun when each comes around the candy's back. But in the later stages of conversion, I just remember being like, huh, if I take Lent seriously, if I let the church really guide this season, every time I do that, I have a better Easter. I celebrate more. I'm more excited about what's coming feel joy, the Easter, the, the promise of Easter joy. I feel it. I experience it in ways that I realize are tied to the way that I engage Lent. And so I was really passionate about Lent in the parish, especially I just tell my people, it's like, this is the season. I said this last time we talked about Lent too, Katie, but it's the season in which we stand to, to gain the most ground, if you will, or to make the, the greatest strides in our own conversion mm-hmm. into looking more like Christ, Christ likeness, because there's so much that's be stripped away. There's so much that accumulates over the course of a year that is just sinful or, or is slothful or, or negligent. And Lent, as hard as the themes can be, Lent just calls those right to the front and says, hey, it's not going that well. And uh, it, it could be better, but that's going to be demanding. And the demands of the cross are going to come to bear upon your daily existence in Lent if you take it seriously. So I'm just seeing that through my own, in my own journey. And then in the journeys of my people over the years, I've just fallen in love with this season because it, it's, it's essential for Easter. It gets us into Easter Mm-hmm. Not just chronologically, but because sequentially something happens in the heart that leads us to a, a greater upsurge of joy. This year, especially doing the work with religious, there's kind of a nuptial theme to mm-hmm. the whole journal that you'll see or you'll hear and feel as you read, especially in Holy Week. And that comes out of the fact that in the East, the Eastern churches, the, the Holy Week, the first three days, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, their liturgies are called the, the Liturgy of the Divine Bridegroom or the Bridegroom mm-hmm. Liturgies. And the cover image that I asked, I wanted this to be on the cover because it's an image of Christ the suffering servant, which is an Eastern icon, but, but in the East, it's not called Christ the suffering servant. It's called Christ the bridegroom, mm. which is mystery, right? It's like, well, he's suffering and dying. How's that bridegroom? And you realize, well, no, this is how he's, this is how he's winning the bride. This is how he's, he's bringing forth the possibility of this, this final bond, this nuptial bond that he's promised for hundreds of years. He's bringing it forth now. And so Easter is the celebration of that consummation. Holy Week is a celebration of how Christ wins the bride for himself. Mm. And it just has a lot to do with religious life, obviously, with religious women consecrated as brides, but the whole church to understand yeah. that like, you no, know, we watch Christ. We enter into the way that Christ wins us back to God. And, and we engage that. We respond to that by the way we, we prepare for it through Lent and by the way we celebrate it at Easter. So it's actually all about the bond of love. I want to I want to dig into that because the word nuptial carries a lot of weight in our world, not always good, yeah. or sometimes like distorted. And then also this idea of Christ won something. And and I don't know about you father, but sometimes like if I'm in the midst of suffering, I think to myself, well he sure didn't win enough. Like if this sucks, then clearly Jesus didn't win the right way. It's really easy to go into Lent like guns blazing. I'm excited for this. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give alms. And then like two weeks in, it gets hard and I'm kind of over it. Oh, well, Jesus did this already. Like I don't need to do it for myself. Or then just in general, like daily life, there's a, a, a suffering, there's a pain, there's a hurt or something really bad happens. Like something colossally challenging occurs. How do we wrestle with that? Jesus won, but that doesn't mean it's just fairy tales and, and rainbows all the time in my life. Yeah, I mean, he won, he conquered death. So he rescued us from death and he, he overcame the ancient foe. But the once and for all reality, it comes to bear upon uh, the, the freedom of each individual human person. So he conquered death, no longer has power, no longer has its sting. Unless I choose to, to live according to the flesh, according to the world, mm-hmm. according to death. So the, the winning is like once and for all, but also constantly ongoing for each of us. Like there's a battle going on over our souls constantly in the spiritual arena that we can't see. And, and the enemy's always striving to take ground back. And the Lord is always striving to prompt us, to draw us, to respond to his gift that he could take ground back as well for himself, for us, for, for, for the bond of love that he's trying to deepen in us. So when we have those moments of great suffering, I find, uh, I, I had a meditation recently where I just was with Christ in the garden of Gethsemane and he was off alone away from everybody as the scripture tells us, but he just was like on the ground and in the meditation, I just went and sat next to him while he was on the ground, just like sweating and aching. And he just looked at me and he said, this, this is what it costs to win the bride. And 
I remember I had to go back to that a number of times and be like, okay, there's a real, the, 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 the work of God is once and for all unfolding across the, across time, across the face of the earth. In our lives, there is this constant need to, to like recognize that we go uh, toward or away from the Lord. And when we've fallen away from the Lord or when the Lord needs to do more to draw us back, it's going to be the same way that he, that he drew his son to himself to, to, to win this bite. It's going to be through suffering. And so mm. while we want to like get around the cross or get around the garden of Gethsemane, uh, Christ himself presses forward through it. And as if we can relate to him in those places of darkness and say, like, Jesus, you, you endured the worst suffering to win the bride, to win me, help me in the midst of this suffering, which is much worse than I would like, but help me here, turn my attention to you, relate this to you, speak to you about it so that the power of the enemy doesn't win and I don't stumble further away, but rather this can be my communion with you in your passion because your passion always moves to the resurrection. Mm -hmm. Often my experience of suffering is moving away from the resurrection. If I don't remain close to God, eyes on the horizon, heart turned toward the passion of Christ and the gift of the resurrection. So it's, it's in those moments when, yeah, we thought like, cause she didn't win this well enough. Why would I have to keep enduring this? They're actually all sacred moments when the Lord has permitted these sufferings. It's because he sees there's a place, there's ground to be gained within us. There's more of our heart that, that could be his. And he's asking us to, to get to know him in the pathway, the incarnate pathway of the passion, like through suffering mm -hmm. into the, the victory that we would taste again, the joy that, of the fact that death is overcome. So mm -hmm. the, the most potent places in our lives, sufferings, not just the suffering, like we choose some suffering, right? That's Lent fasting, some of our penitential acts, but the suffering we don't choose, the crosses that, that we didn't select, those are the ones that are like very precious to the Lord. The father himself allowed his own son to receive that cross upon his shoulders mm -hmm. because he saw what it would do for us. The father himself allows these crosses to land upon our shoulders because he sees what they're going to be able to do for the mm -hmm. kingdom if we stay with Jesus the whole way through. So mm -hmm. a roundabout answer, but it's just all about being with Jesus in those places to let him yeah. teach us. Like, this is what it costs. Yeah, the return is through that garden. The return is through... I mean, through carrying the cross, right? Like it's not a return through just those fields of roses, although there are moments of that great consolation. It's, it's a return through this, this hardship, but not like in a masochistic way. I always feel like we kind of have to like put that caveat, especially mm -hmm. for people who are maybe not as invested in the faith. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, no, it's not like Jesus is like hand handing you just like some really hard times so that you can just suffer with him or so that he can just suffer with you. It's that freedom. The suffering has occurred in this world because people still freely choose not God, but that there's a, there's a tenderness even in the midst of that suffering. That, that seems to always be the, the hang up that it's, there's purpose and there's value. And yet the Lord tenderly walks beside in all of that. I want to talk about this word return because it's a very casual return is, is a word that we use in everyday language. I've got to return some library books when we get off the recording to get, it's a Saturday. And this is typically when we go return our library books. You think of it as just like handing something back in whether it's, you, you know, you return what you've borrowed or you return, you know, this item that wasn't exactly what you wanted it to be from the store, but you're using this word in a far less casual way. Let's talk about that verb in our lives in the season of Lent. Why did you choose that particular word? Let's start with that. Yeah, it comes straight from the liturgy. It's the first reading that we hear every single year on Ash Wednesday. The first reading, it repeats every single year. We hear the beginning of the Joel prophecy, or Joel chapter two, but the beginning of our liturgy starts with this call through the prophet Joel to Israel to return. And the return is return to me is actually the, the full kind of phrase. And, and it's just this, it's a heartbreaking, it's truly tender, as you said a minute ago, it's a tender invitation from the Lord, but with the recognition of the costliness of sin, like to return is going to be demanding, but to return, it's not just a uh, giving something back, as you said, or it's not some inconsequential expression. It's a return to a bond, a return to a relationship. It's a return to God who's love. And so I just wanted to take that reading that, that the church has put over the whole season, return to me with your whole heart, and to let that guide the way that we're thinking about all of our practices. Like everything I do, I'm adding or taking away for Lent. I don't want it to just be because this is what I do. It's a part of the tradition or it's what my family does. I want it to be because it has to be. I want it to be so. I want it to be there because I want to be able to understand that what I'm doing, what I'm taking away, what I'm adding is about getting back to God. 
And so mm-hmm. if something's in the way of that, I need to curb that out or carve that out. If something's clouding things up or, or keeping me confused, bound to the world, I need to return my attention to how that got me off on tra- off track or off, off the pathway of my own set of commitments that I made prior to the season or prior to even last Easter. So it's just always, the return is always to God. And that's what the prophecy itself calls us to. It's, it's a, I say it in the introduction of the book, it's not an easy book, nor is it an easy season. And the prophecy itself, the Lord says, return to me with your whole heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, rend your hearts, not your garments and return to the Lord, your God. So I just take a, a, a little chunk of that for each week and set that as the banner over the week's meditations to help everybody recognize the costliness of the return. The fact that it's a return to God who holds in his own heart, everything that we long for. We get confused about that when we're outside of God or away from God. So the return is just back to a God who's trying to bless us. When, when we say return to a God who's trying to bless us, that means that we've walked away from that God and maybe have thought of those blessings as curses or thought those blessings aren't enough. Or I think the a very 2023, let's, let's just say in a post-COVID world, the attitude is often me, myself, and I, I can do it by myself. I can do it on my own. Like, I don't, why would I return to God? He hasn't delivered in the past or he has delivered, but it hasn't been what I wanted or, you know, that, oh, that's hard. Like that's a, that's a life that requires something of me, that costliness. And I would rather spend my money elsewhere essentially. Right. So if we're returning, we've walked away. I want to talk about why you think people walk away. What, what do you see in your travels in your ministry in conversations? I mean, just in the everyday, you're up in Wisconsin, you're surrounded by people. Like, what do you see? drives people away that would need this call to return? Yeah. And the, the easy, quick answer is, is sin, the allure of the world, the vision that perpetuates and makes us kind of despair of, of any ideal or any possibility uh, that we might hold in our hearts of things being better than they are. Talk about any of those things, but really as you ask, and as I was praying this morning, there's like another angle to an answer is really just around asking for grace and particularly the grace. So, so we have our sin. We have to confront that. We have all these things in the world that can attract us and, and draw us in and lead us to forget God and remember is another strong word of the prophets to bring us back to remembering who God is and what he's done for us. We have to repeat these things. But intellectually, there's a lot we could discuss. But I'm, I'm more and more convinced lately of just like there's also a gift that we have to receive, but we also have to express a desire for that gift. And the gift is just an awareness of, of the fact that we need God. And that's really simple sounding. But looking at the scriptures, so right now we've been reading Mark's gospel. When you look at the crowds in the beginning of the gospels, the first several chapters, they're just like surging upon Jesus. They're surrounding him. They're put, the disciples are putting him into a boat to get him away so he doesn't get crushed by crowds. I'm like, what's going on in those crowds? Like, what, what's drawing them to Jesus? And, and each of the people, and then collectively all of the people, just had this profound awareness, like, whoever that is, I, I need him. I need to be near him. I need his healing. I need his teaching. I need his friendship. And so the crowds, the, the evangelical, the gospel crowds are driven by a deep heart recognition of a need for Jesus. And I just don't know. We can think that through like, where do I need Jesus? What's my poverty? What are my limits? Where do I find, you know, and it's a vulnerable place to go and all the intellectual considerations. But I also believe there's just a gift that we have to ask for. It's like, Lord, show me how deeply in need I am. And, and I personally am often like afraid of my needs. I'm afraid of my vulnerability and my weakness because any one of those places is a spot where I can't do it on my own, which means I'm vulnerable and, and vulnerability is pointing toward wounding and death eventually. And so that's a place of kind of self-protection and fear. But, but if I can in prayer, in, in uh, knowing the tender compassion of my God, as scripture calls him, uh, I can say, Lord, like show me and, and just deepen in me an awareness of how much I need you. Because I don't even know. I mean, often the case is that we don't feel like we need God. We don't care about wanting to know God better or about doing the things the church tells us we ought to be doing. It just doesn't drive us. It doesn't stir us. And in part, that's because we're forgetful. Our sin kind of clouds our vision. But also like the Lord wants to see a desire expressed within us. Like, God, I, I want to want you. I want to mm-hmm. long to know you. I want to receive your gifts. Help me see how much I need what you're trying to give me. Open my eyes, the eyes of my heart, enlighten my eyes, you know, the mm. eyes of my heart, so I can admit that I need you. And then, Lord, deepen that desire so I come yeah. toward you. Well, I think there's something really human here. Like, I, I don't want to need God because I want to just go it alone. But I also, like, don't want to need anything from anyone else. Like, there's, there's almost in our, in our culture this, 
that self-sufficiency, independence, like don't let anyone in. We build these bridges and we build up these, well, not bridges, we build up these walls because if I seem to be lacking in something, somebody might perceive that as weakness. And if I'm weak, then I can't do what's expected of me. So you're talking and you're saying this, like we need to, to recognize we need God and ask him for a desire to be docile to that reception. And my, my head immediately went to the last time we saw each other in person at Seek. Hmm. We're all sitting around. It was like a snapshot of heaven. Once again, my favorite moments of, of ministry life are when people are in Marriott bars, just hanging out with one another. And I ordered a cup of tea because I had no voice. And it was like this silly little moment. The guy brings over this giant box of tea options and I'm like quickly picking one. And I drank it rather quickly. Eventually moved down a couch. I'm sitting there with a friend of ours, Father John Lococo, who's going to be in the season uh, of the podcast, talking about one of the weeks. And you asked me, do you need more hot water? And my immediate thought was, no, like you're sitting here visiting with somebody. I'm not going to interrupt you. I'm in the corner. Like I can't get up right now to go get some more. And you just did it. Like you just went up and got me hot water and another bag and some honey, which I really could have used. You just like, it was just this very, I don't even know if you realize how impactful that it was a very tender fatherly thing to do for a friend of yours sitting in the corner with no voice who was just like drinking her tea while everybody else is enjoying their gin and tonics. And, and like my sister, our mutual friend, my sister, she was like, that was really nice of him. And I was like, it was, it was like more than nice. It was like fatherly. It was, it was tender. I didn't even know I needed it. And I think there are moments in our life where we want to seem self self-sufficient. I don't want to bother anybody. I don't want to be a bother. And yet then there's moments where people want to provide for us and we resist it. So sometimes we just have to do it for the person who's resisting it. Like you did in that instance, you just took it upon yourself. It took you no time. But then I think there's a greater lesson here in that there are moments where God just sometimes kind of busts in and just does it for us. But he only does that so many times because he wants the heart to be softened. How do you find that we can learn that vulnerability with God in our lives? Maybe how you've seen it in priestly ministry, how you've seen it in your family, how you've seen it with the guys that, that you've helped form and with the women who are discerning religious life. What can we do? I guess this is the question. What can we do in our practical daily life that softens our heart to receiving from others so that we can then receive from God and that return can begin. Mm, that's, a, that's a beautiful way of framing the question even. And that moment was like a sacramental moment, you know, like a simple place of uh, yeah. provision. Yeah, gave me some and, tea. Yeah. yeah. But how much is the Lord like that though? Like looking at us more perfectly aware of every single one of our needs than we ever will be. And with a desire mm. to, to come to us in those places. But he sees like a, we're basically like a stubborn child, you know, and the parent knows that if you push too hard into the child's stubbornness, it leads into the tantrum or the shutdown. And so they yep. just sit there and wait. And typically that's how the Lord is. Like he knows exactly what we need, but he's not going to force it on us. Or if he gives it to us at the wrong, you know, when we're not ready to receive it, it might shut us down. And so he's just kind of sitting there waiting. So what, what I'm finding personally, just in my own journey of like getting comfortable with not being able to do everything perfectly because I've always wanted to do everything perfectly, like coming out of my own broken story, like perfectionism was a major thing for me. And, and the recognition that I can admit to friends, not everybody, but I can admit like when I just don't do it very well, like I, I screwed that up or I'm really sorry that I wasn't able to help you there or that I said it that way. Those are really hard places for me. And I think for all of us, the admission that we didn't do it perfectly or we aren't good at something or other thing. The, the reason I point to that as like a starting point is because that's what the liturgy is actually asking us to do as well. You know, every time we gather at the beginning of the liturgy, we, we, are, we confess our sins, but that has to be coming from a deep place, not just going through the motions. So I think there's something profound to like the admission of our limit uh, publicly for sin in, in the case of the liturgy, but also just it, communally to friends, to family, especially closest relations to be like, hey, either I need help here. Or I don't know what to do or like I'm scared of missing that up or, or you know destroying mm -hmm. something when i when i get caught you can do that with everybody like you, gotta, you also have to be prudent about how you share with whom but i notice a lot of guardedness in people even around people very close to them and and we all can look at each other and see that we're not doing it perfectly whatever it is like we're all making mistakes all the time the people who i've watched grow in holiness and my own journey into deeper communion with the lord has come through that recognition that like i have to kind of put my hands up in the air sometimes and and beg, like ask for help, admit my limit. Augustine's line, I always quote it, but he says, man is a beggar before God. And I've just, for 15 years now, I've been sitting with that and still recognizing more and more that I'm just a beggar. And sometimes a beggar doesn't even know what they need. They just know like life is really poor. Like someone bless me. 
And, and the mm-hmm. father's ready for that, but, but we need to get comfortable showing him the places where there's just a real raw need. So I think that comes yeah. through family and friends in, in prudence, but then also just in the interior of life, like, God, I need you more than I know. Show me where I need you and stir my desire to welcome you to those places because they're not threatening to you, God. They're threatening yeah. to me. I feel like they're dangerous, but they're not. It's like we can put our hands up in defense mode. I just got back from a child's basketball game. So Tommy's coaching these five-year-olds, hands up, hands up. And it's to defend, right? Like block the ball. But then there's this other hands up, hands up when they're trying to like catch the rebound. (laughs) And it seems like most of our lives is just discerning. When am I in defense mode or when am I trying to catch the rebound? And I don't know, five-year-olds can't figure it out. Like like they're just stealing the ball from their own teammates. So I feel like even in, in your 30s and your 40s and well into... You've got your own kids and you're just trying to figure out life. It's this constant discernment of when do I ask? When do I receive? When do I hold back? When do I vulnerably open up? And I, I tend to find, like you just said, when I'm more willing to admit weakness, I mean, it's in our, in our weakness that we're made strong, right? Like scripture tells us that it's in that receptivity. God can give me what I need, but he's never going to force it upon me. I, w- I want to talk about how Lent is really the perfect time to discern all of these things, any time of year where you're trying to become more vulnerable, where you're, you're opening yourself up to those, those healing hands that the Lord wants to, to hold you with. But especially in this season of entering into the desert of praying and fasting and giving alms, it's almost like the church is saying like, we all know <laughs> that we probably need some sort of a reset. Let's do it now together. But how do we fight against the temptation to turn Lent into a project? Or to like, I make my list of these are the things I'm going to do to return to God. And it's going to include this weekly podcast and this book and these videos. And like, we turn it into a project and a program rather than just a chance to grow. And I'm not saying we need to be loosey goosey with it. Sometimes having those systems in place are good, but, but to, to not turn it into, I'm just going to complete Lent and it'll all be better. Like I'll get to Holy Week and it'll be great. But instead actually like transform and convert and, and this, this metanoia that can occur sticks. How do we fight that temptation? I mean, yeah, the, the, the question for everybody's life is why am I doing what I'm doing? Mm-hmm. And, and not just why do I do the stuff that I don't like? I, I wish I didn't do that. Where's I coming from? All the roots of those things are important to examine. But like, what's the point of even my good and biased practices? Why am I doing this? And I'll, I, there's a little bit of section in there where I talk about telos, the Greek philosophical idea of end or goal or finality, ultimacy. And that, that human activity, rational, moral activity is goal-oriented activity. We do things for reasons and we're able to like deduce what reason I did this for or what I was pursuing. But, but there's an ultimacy to like goals are ordered to other goals. You know, like I take a job in order to, you know, make income for my family. And this is a, I'm, I'm a priest. So none of these things are actually what I'm doing. <laughs> I got <laughs> ordained in order to fulfill the will of God. I serve right. my people in order to bless them. I would bless them because I want to be a better priest. We can trace out the goals. But there's really only one ultimate goal, a final end. And Thomas Aquinas reads this really beautifully in the Summa. But, but what we have to all kind of step back and say is like, what's the final goal? Like, what's the real ultimate pursuit of my life? And everybody wants to be happy. We all admit that's the common desire. But how we articulate what will actually make us perpetually happy trickles back down through all of the rest of the goals. And Thomas says, you know, some people think it's wealth or pleasure or power, honor. And there can only be one really ultimate final goal. And I think a lot of the time for us, we might say we want to be happy, but we're not quite sure what's going to make us happy. So we have a conflicting set of commitments. Like God could make me happy, but I'm also worried about that. So money has to make me happy. And so I'm going to kind of fight. I'm going to divide my heart. That division is going to disperse my energies in contradictory ways. So why am I doing what I'm doing? When I take up the penitential practice of Lent, when I give up chocolate, like sometimes people rail on giving up chocolate. It's good to give up chocolate if you're giving up chocolate for the right reason. And so we just need to kind of bring around each of these so that it doesn't become a project for like losing weight or getting better at mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z virtues. Those things are all fine as long as I can say, in my intention, I want to lose weight or perfect these virtues because that brings glory to God. That draws me closer to the pathway that he has for me because I want to be with God forever in heaven. So it really comes down to like the finality of all of our goals, deciding that heaven is the goal, union with God. And then watching how we can trace that through all the rest of our goals, including simple and basic pious practices, which are never ends in themselves, are always means to further ends. Goals become means to further ends into the final end. So maybe a little bit chewy, that idea of teleology or the fact that we're goal oriented. We need to think that through and bring that down into like the little tiny nitty gritty of every single day. 
Why do we change the diapers? Why do we sweep the floors? Mm -hmm. Why do we get up in the morning? Why do we hit our knees and pray before we go to bed? All those things, if we can make sure they're pointing at the desire to be with God forever, it's not a project. It's a Mm -hmm. response to the divine project to win us back from the kingdom of darkness and to give us life everlasting. It really is that simple. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a further renewal and a, a deeper return yeah. because I have that end in mind and not project wise. I, I feel like our do it myself, like the DIY attitude of, of the world has seeped into our spiritual lives because then there's also this temptation of, okay, well, if my ultimate end is just to be with God, then none of these like little things, I, like we can either become too program oriented with it and check it out as a, okay, this is just a box. It's that I have to check every single day. I have to check during the season of Lent. Or we become very, very loosey-goosey with it. Like, oh, well, if my ultimate end is just union with God, then it doesn't matter when it happens or it doesn't matter how it happens. And yet there needs to be this intentionality. So if the one temptation is I program it too much, the other temptation is I just kind of let it happen. And and receptivity is not just letting it happen. It's it's a receiving. There has to be an intentionality in that receiving. How can we make sure that we are intentional to fight against that other side that we might drift into. Yeah. And even like to add another philosophical term or phrase to what you just said, something for us to always be aware of is that there is no such thing as a neutral moral act. In other mm. words, if I've chosen to do something cognitively, I'm aware of what I'm doing and I choose it, I intend it, it's not neutral. It has a moral value, good or bad. The goodness or the badness can be greater or lesser but, but all evil acts are moving me away from that goal of heaven or happiness. All good acts are moving me toward it. So the little tiny stuff, anything we do during the day, if we choose to do it, it has some moral value. Mm-hmm. And so I can kind of, it, it, you don't need to get obsessed with like think every single step of every single day through, but it's about an awareness, a deep awareness, like everything I'm doing today is moving me in a direction. And, and there's going to be kind of a net sum, like today was a good day. Like in my examination, like I tended toward God or I tended away from God. And then I can look at that and say, like, well, what are the things that are tending or drawing me away from God? Why, why is my tendency yeah. into darkness so easily? And I can get concrete with which acts are moving me away from God and which acts are moving me toward God. So that intentionality you're naming. So back to what you're saying about projects too, I think, where we can make this too much about um, humanity and even human development or just like I'm going to perfect the virtues by my own powers, the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are given to us to to guide us beyond what reason can perceive. So like Thomas Mm -hmm. tells us that like sometimes we can't see what we should do and we need a higher rule than even reason. And that's the rule of God or the law of God that sometimes we don't fully grasp, but he gives us his spirit to move us, to prompt us, to, to incline us toward the types of activities that just move us toward God. So Throughout the day, it can be, this is what life in the Holy Spirit really is. This is what promptings of the Holy Spirit, this is what consultation of God, the instinctive spirit to sancti the church teaches us, is just about the fact that God is always moving, living, breathing in us to bring us home, to, to help us return to him. So little tiny stuff, uh, even the little stuff and the big stuff, little tiny stuff of the day-to-day has moral value. The big stuff, even working out the virtues, et cetera, which can seem very human, if I'm pursuing human virtues perfection because I want to look like Jesus, it's a good, and it's not a project. If I'm pursuing human virtue because I just want to be better at life, I want to overcome obstacles and, and flourish as a man, that might be a little bit secular. It might be a little bit pagan. It might be a little bit bound up in this world. If it doesn't have a relation to ultimacy or to God and to imitation of Christ, and, and when I'm tending in that direction, then I'm going to tend toward projects, tend toward a Pelagian idea of, of making myself mm-hmm. holier or self-mastery without the assistance of God's grace. So there are little ways to bring in the the elements of our tradition into living an intentional life. And and that meaning much more than a new age self-help books mean. Um, We're Mm -hmm. intending God and Christ-likeness and and the perfection of the human person in the image of God by the help that he gives to us through, uh, especially the church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Lent is not just Catholic self-help. There's not... There's not a way to gamify it. There's not a way to programize it. Like at the end of the day, it's it's you and the Lord sitting there, hopefully working towards that end goal of union for eternity. Yeah. And having that, it almost feels, uh, it feels heavy. Like there is like this weight to it, but the, even, so uh, the, the weird example I'm thinking of here is uh, at Christmas, Tommy, Tommy's one request was those Bowflex dumbbells that you can like change the weight on them. Yeah. 
which I don't understand how, like, how can it be 50 pounds and five pounds? Like it truly, like it boggles my mind. And I'm sure there's some Reddit thread that's explained the science of it, but it's funny. Cause like when I go out into the garage, I'm obviously not setting them on 50. I set them like 10, 15. And it's very, very, it's, there's a weight, there's a, there's a resistance, but it's something much easier for me to lift up. Uh, then when he goes out there and he turns them onto 50 and he, he pumps his iron as it were, but it's like, there's, the, there's a weight that changes from time to time, I guess, is the image that I'm thinking of, right? This idea that at the beginning of Lent, sometimes it feels very heavy. And by the end, there's like, oh, there's like a joy in the carrying of this. Or sometimes we, we aren't actually pushing ourselves enough in the beginning because we don't have that final goal in mind. We just have that. I just don't want to be as addicted to soda as much as I am right now. And so it's, it's, it, I think too, there needs to be this idea of letting it play out and, and being receptive to what the Lord's going to give us and that weight that changes over the course of it um, and kind of that teeter-tottering back and forth, how heavy, how light. What's your advice for people or respond to that? I mean, what's your advice for people in just the Lenten season in general? Yeah, I mean, on that, I think it's there's a, a need to like set the, the direction, if you will, by prayerful mm-hmm. discernment at the beginning of Lent and then to course correct or just along the way. Yeah. So there's some years where like the train is off the tracks in like a day or two, you know, like my homily, like at, at the first Sunday of Lent last year was like, I blew most of my resolutions already in like three <laughs> days. And there are just years like that. It's like, well, we get back on the horse and we recommit. There are other mm-hmm. years where I find, and I've, I've met with and walked with a lot of people who find the same thing, two, three weeks in, the stuff you started with is now easy. And that's kind of the image you're using, like with, with building muscles. Once we habilitate the virtue... And, and mm-hmm. we've moved away from the vice. It becomes rather easy and even enjoyable to perform good deeds that used to be very difficult. At that point, we add more weight. We add a, a, another layer of penitential practice. We deepen our prayer. We, we put further into the work of almsgiving, not just giving money away, but being merciful toward other people. Mm-hmm. Because we're noticing an increased capacity to enjoy the good that has been established and stabilized by God's guidance and by our response to it. But I think second and third week of Lent is a crucial moment to... To really sit back and do like a full examination of how Lent has gone. And that might be just 15 minutes or so. But like to look back, say, what did I start with? Do I need to add stuff? Do you take away and recommit? Because if it's going well, we're going to probably need to add a little bit more. Or, or lean forward and like let the season keep deepening the conversion of the heart that became hard before and is now being softened for love. If we've fallen back, we need to get climbed back in and be like, I don't want to waste this season. I don't want to waste mm-hmm. the invitation to engage Easter more fully. So my advice is always like set in prayer, set your resolutions before Ash Wednesday. That first weekend, revisit them. Make sure they're set. Sometimes you did set them, you know, like get to it by by first Sunday of Lent. You got to know what you're doing for Lent. And then mm-hmm. second and third weeks, just be willing to check in. It might be second or third week for depending on, you know, how your season's going. But around there is when you kind of double down, increase or recalibrate. Mm-hmm. And after that, just to be willing to listen to the Holy Spirit. Like sometimes I found that I just, the Lord will invite me into like a much more radical set of fasting practices leading into Holy Week or, or mm-hmm. much more almsgiving. Um, uh, some years I've, I, as a priest, I pray a holy hour. Some years, every day, some years the Lord has invited me to add a second holy hour in the second half mm-hmm. of Lent. And I'm like, Dude, how am I going to make an hour of time, an extra hour of time? And then I'm like, why am I doing what I'm doing? <laughs> Mm-hmm. What am I doing here that's not that important? Could I give the Lord an hour? And I'm I'm able to work it out and it comes at a cost. But on back end of that, I'm always like, thank God I listened to God <laughs> and not myself yeah. and my calendar. Yeah, it, that's great advice to think about it before we are like fully in. Because sometimes it surprises you, right? Like, oh God, yeah. I gotta do something. It's like, it's like a New Year's resolution. Oh my goodness, it's yeah. January 1st. Like, what am I gonna do? Yeah, I told Tommy just this morning, we went to go set our Sam's order. And, you know, like our monthly, okay, let's load up the fridge. And so I was like, oh, okay, today's Sam's order, end of January is for like the the few weeks leading into the Lenten season. And then we'll have, of course, another Sam's order come Lent time because we're recording this early, obviously. Uh, and I said, you know what? Don't put in the coffee creamer. He's like, what? I was like, I think I'm going to give up coffee creamer. Like, uh-huh. I think I'm just going to drink black coffee. And he, he joked, he's like, you're not becoming a nun. I was like, I know, like, like <laughs> Laura has trained herself to drink like her one cup of coffee with her one black cup of coffee. But like the sisters give it up, like the sisters of life. I think they give up coffee during the season of Lent. Like, I think there's an actual intentional, we are giving up this one small luxury that they don't even have until after their morning holy hour. It's like, so in solidarity, in solidarity with them, I'm going to give up my coffee creamer. And it seems small, but it's a huge sacrifice in the sense of, this this little tiny pleasure is now just going to almost be like an efficiency thing. Like I'm just going to drink the coffee because it's it wakes me up in the morning. 
But in that denial, that asceticism that you develop, you, you become less attached to the things of this world. Thinking about it just ahead of time, even that one tiny small thing, hopefully becomes easy. And so then I can add something else in. I, I can kind of discern, okay, maybe what is the Lord requesting of me? I feel like we're using a lot of re words here. Um, what do you tend, you just mentioned the holy hour, like adding that holy hour in. Is there anything over the years, like you consistently every Lent, this is what I do. I know like it can't just be like this formulaic thing, but are there consistent practices over the years that you've realized this is really fruitful? I'm going to do this for this 40 days. Well, one thing I noticed is that I hate fasting. And uh, <laughs> that's, Same. I always know that's God. I mean, like you need to fast. And so I've felt a need to respond to that prompting and, and kind of push a little bit harder each year. There's some years where I pushed too hard. One year I gave up, I'll give up meat sometimes and meat's hard, mm. but I di- started doing it because I got a buddy who's a monk and they don't eat meat ever. Once you enter the monastery, yeah. they eat meat. I, mean, I could do that for Lent, you know, wow. uh, which was hard. I did it. The next year I gave up cheese and meat. And that year I realized that like, when I don't eat meat, I always put cheese on whatever I'm eating. And when you give up the cheese too, it's like really horrible. <laughs> like I couldn't yeah. do, I couldn't be vegan. So that year I had to kind of adjust, but I added some more fasting because I realized, so basically to, to draw a principle out of that, look at the one that is the least attractive to you of prayer, fasting and almsgiving mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. ask why it's unattractive. Is it, is it challenging? Is it off-putting? Do you not see its relevance? And those are all going to be different answers. But I find my resistance is often the place where some of the old man, like the the, mm-hmm. the the fallen pattern is still really strong. That's where the Lord wants to focus with me. In those choices and in the whole doing, you'll see that in the videos this year, the, the theme is the desert. We're out in this mm-hmm. really cool setting filming these videos. And, and the thing to just kind of remember is Lent is Christ goes into the desert in imitation or in fulfillment of Israel's wandering in the desert. So we go out into this drier, arid, less comfortable place, but it's a place that Christ has gone first. And so it's Whatever our practices are, we're not, we can't go into them alone. We go out into the desert to find Jesus there and to relate mm. to him in all these practices and to be willing to follow him. If he says like, let's climb this mountain, or let's descend into this place to go with him. So all that we add, all that we take away, all the discomfort that we notice as resistance is, is in relation to him because what he's doing in the desert is, is battling the foe. Like the first thing he does is confront Satan. You know, like he's out in the desert to confront the, the one who had hold over our lives mm-hmm. since the fall. And so if we can strip away, lean into the sacrifices, but relate to Christ out in this simpler, arid, desert-like place, we're able to receive in a kind of real-time fashion insight, guidance, prompting into what the Lord knows is going to be best for us. And and through that, he's going to teach us that this is just, it's not a project. It's not self-referential, nor is it self-perfection. It's all about conformity to Christ and, and transformation changing of the form uh, of the, of the, of the human heart, uh, of suffering, of intentional practices, of everything. Like all this is a massaging of the soul back into being alive, a flesh, mm-hmm. softening of the heart against what had become cold and hard. Mm, so good. Father, we could keep going, but I don't want to keep you any longer. And there's a whole book that everybody can walk this journey really much you know, guided by you, that, that spiritual fatherhood comes forth on the page. And, and we're so grateful that you wrote it and so grateful that you shared with us about it. Where can folks follow you? Yeah, so I'm on, I call myself like a passive social media user. <laughs> like I'm on <laughs> at Father John Burns on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, but I don't do a lot there, but you can find me there. We just launched a little website, renewreligious.org, which will be the place where we're posting a lot of other video content for religious life and the church's kind of duty to, to recognize the value of that life of women consecrated to God. So those are places where you can find me. And if you do reach out to be in touch with me, just please be patient because I'm really, really slow <laughs> getting back to people talking about a place of noticing my own weakness and poverty. Yeah. I think uh, this might be a, a an advertisement for an assistant for Father John. <laughs> <laughs> an email, an email uh, AI system uh, of some sort. In stereo. Uh, Father... Yeah, something, something, right? Father, thank you so much for taking the time. So good to be with y'all. I'll be praying all through that for everybody who's with us on this journey. So thanks, everybody. Every time I talk to Father John, I just feel so uh, renewed, truly. He's got spiritual insights that I think are just solid gold and really, really give us a renewed understanding of what it means to return to the Lord. I know he spoke at the beginning about this image of the bridegroom on the front of the book, this image of the suffering Christ and how in, in 
you know, Western Roman Catholicism, our perception of, of the suffering Christ is such that he's, he's covered in this red cloak and he's, he's holding this crown of the, you know, he's wearing this crown of thorns and he's, he's holding this reed, right? He is the suffering Christ. If you look at the front of the return book, you'll see this image beautifully drawn by Josiah, the illustrator of the book, the artist that gives us this beautiful art to contemplate in the, in the journal. But he, he was telling me right before we hit record, and he mentioned it a little bit at the beginning of our conversation about how in the Eastern Rite, the, the title is not the suffering Christ. The title is Christ the Bridegroom. Because it is Christ's sacrifice, the suffering of Christ, that unites us in this nuptial way to the Lord, the, the bridegroom, the church, we the church, his bride. And how the union only occurs through the suffering. How the renewal only occurs because Christ endured death and, and sadness. And Father John gave us that beautiful image at the start of our, our chat about sitting beside the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane and it was the suffering and it was the pain and it was that isolation in some sense that allows this renewal that Christ was willing to endure that so that we could all be with him for all of eternity and that every pursuit that we make is this attempt to return. And we're able to return at all. We're able to return at all because of that suffering he endured. And so we, therefore, over the course of Lent, make this return in our own lives by embracing and enduring a suffering that at times is quite difficult and at times is very unpleasant. At times is sometimes self-imposed or at times is something that we can't avoid, but that in that there is grace to be found. If you haven't grabbed a copy yet of your return book, you can head on over to the Ave Maria Press website, AveMariaPress.com. Grab a copy now. You've still got time to order one and have it in your hands. We would love it if you'd have the book. So then, of course, you can go read through the various things that are going to be discussed on the show, but but also because journaling, maybe in a group or, or maybe with some some friends or with your spouse or, you know, in, in some cases, maybe your, your teenage or young adult children as a youth ministry program, as a theology classroom, to really walk through this book, even just on your own. And deeply, deeply pray about this idea of returning to the Lord with all our heart because we've walked away. I think Father John has really kicked off these conversations beautifully. We'll have these episodes every single Sunday of Lent. Amazing conversations are coming to you over the course of the season. Conversations that, again, I think will be quite fruitful to you. Conversations with people uh, like Justina Kopp and Father John Lococo and uh, Sister Miriam James Heidland, Father Agostino Torres, Paul George, Stephanie Weinert, amazing conversations that I, I think will be very, very fruitful for you about the themes of this Lenten book. So grab your copy of Return. We have a link down in the show notes. Follow Father John Burns on social media. Check out that website that he mentioned about the renewal of religious life. Join us for these conversations every week here on this podcast feed. Watch the videos available on AveMariaPress.com and know that we're praying for you as we all return together to the Lord this Lenten season. is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.